Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and to him and through him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship with Him. Scripture teaches us that it is God the Holy Spirit who works in our lives to enable us to understand God's Word, to be able to store it in our soul and to recall it at times of application. It is God the Holy Spirit who produces spiritual growth in us. And this is done when we are in fellowship with God, walking by the Spirit, the Scripture says. But whenever we sin, we grieve, we quench the Holy Spirit. And so we need to, at times, confess our sins, Scripture says, which means to simply acknowledge or admit our sins in privacy to God the Father. At that instant, we are forgiven, we are restored to fellowship so that we can resume our forward momentum. And so we always take time before we begin class to do this, not as some sort of mechanistic ritual. Sometimes people get that idea. It's a pedagogical tool. We do this on a weekly basis, every time we start class, simply to remind you and to teach you and to build that skill into your life so that you practice it on a regular basis. So let's bow our heads together. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, the psalmist says, if we regard iniquity in our, in our heart, that you will not hear us. And so, Father, we take time to confess our sins, to identify those areas where we have let our sin nature rule in our lives. And we know that at that instant, we are given complete and total forgiveness and cleansing from all sins, not just the ones we remember and confess. Now, Father... As we study your word, we are mindful that it is God, the Holy Spirit, out of your grace who indwells us, who fills us, who teaches us, and he is the one who enables us to understand these things, and it is God, the Holy Spirit, who produces in us, as a result of our study and application of your word, the fruit of the Spirit. It is the character of Christ replicated in each of us, and this is necessary in our battle as we are engaged in spiritual warfare within the angelic conflict to grow and mature as a testimony to the angels and to men of your grace, of who you are and what you have done. Our Father, as we study your word today, may it uh, work in us. May God the Holy Spirit use it. 
may we understand these things and get a greater appreciation for how our life fits within the broader scope of your plan and the angelic conflict. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Within our study of Revelation, we are taking a little pause to study the topic on the doctrine of the angelic conflict. This is one of those overarching doctrines that's uh, developed throughout Scripture that helps us to understand and orient to why certain things are happening within Scripture and why man exists and why uh, what our purpose is and how the work of Christ on the cross fits within this overall uh, cosmic conflict that began at some time in eternity past and is going to be concluded in, at, at the first stage of it, at the Battle of Armageddon, when the, the demons are sentenced to the, cast to the lake of fire, when Satan is thrown into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. There's one last, uh, as it were, uh, one, one last event, one last epilogue, at the end of the millennium, and then there will be a final destruction and judgment of Satan and all evil. And we fit within this. Angels, as I've pointed out the last few weeks, are crucial, a crucial doctrine within the structure of, of Revelation. And it is within the book of Revelation that we understand that the arch enemy of God is the devil who is identified there as Satan and as uh, the serpent of old. Revelation 12:9 we read so the great dragon was cast out this occurs halfway through the tribulation the and this that dragon is identified then as the serpent of old called the devil and satan who deceives the whole world he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out uh, with him and so we are studying as part of our study of the angelic conflict the fall of satan how did uh, Satan come into existence. Was he a, an eternal creature? Did he always exist? Was there always evil? Is there some sort of a cosmic dualism? And we've seen that that's foreign to Scripture. There is a specific time in which evil entered into and sin entered into uh, the universe, and that is when this creature we now identify as Satan, sometimes as Lucifer, fell in disobedience to God. So let's just review a little bit uh, what we've done so far. We've seen that all these end-time events in Revelation are energized and led by Satan in his final attempt to defeat God. It is clearly a time of the wrath of Satan on the earth during the time of the tribulation. Though he was fully and completely defeated at the cross, he doesn't accept that defeat. He is trying desperately one last shot to prove that he can be God, that God cannot rule the creatures uh, successfully, and if he can destroy the Jews so that God does not bring about or is not able to finish his uh, promises, a promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob in the Old Testament that they would have the land as their possession and that they would have a time of uh, worldwide peace and prosperity, a time known as the Messianic Kingdom, that if Satan can destroy the Jews before God can fulfill his promises, then Satan wins. And so the Jews become a focal point of Satan's activity during the tribulation. This is why it becomes known as the time of Jacob's trouble. 
when Daniel in Daniel 9 is given the vision that we refer to as Daniel's 70th week, the timetable of how much time is left of God's plan for Israel. We've seen in a study of that that in the first period of time, which went from approximately 444 B.C. up to the time of the Messiah being cut off, when Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross, uh, rejected as Messiah of Israel, that that was fulfilled literally. And then there's this pause that comes in, this uh, uh, lapse that occurs. It was unforeseen in the Old Testament when God is working in the church age and brings a new people out called the church. And we're distinct from the nation Israel and their distinct promises and purposes for the church from that of Israel. And yet, uh, God has not forgotten Israel. He will return to his plan. That's the point of the prophecy in Daniel 9, that God will come back during that last seven-year period known as Daniel's 70th week, and then there will be a time of unprecedented judgment on Israel, not from, uh, uh, from God per se, but within the cosmic system as Satan seeks to destroy them. It is also a time of divine discipline on them for having rejected uh, Christ is Messiah, and it is a time when in the intensity of that period, Israel will finally turn and call upon the name of the Lord, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, to come and deliver them as their Messiah. This occurs at the end of that seven-year period, and is at that time Jesus returns, rescues the remnant of Israel in the wilderness, marches triumphantly, to Jerusalem to destroy the armies of the Antichrist, who is also referred to as the beast. It is the Antichrist who is the chief ruler of the Roman revived Roman Empire, and we have seen in our study in previous uh, weeks that he is also uh, has a center of power in uh, a, a rebuilt Babylon. And we did a study on the prophecies related to Babylon and saw that the final destruction of Babylon in the future is linked to the destruction of the demons. And in Revelation 18, verse 2, we read, And cried mightily with a loud voice, this is a mighty angel, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. So there is a connection between the empires of the earth culminating in the uh, rebuilding of Babylon. We looked at Old Testament prophecies in Isaiah chapter 13 to 14, Isaiah chapter 21, Jeremiah 50 to 51. We did a comparison of those prophecies uh, several lessons ago and compared that to the uh, expression of the, uh, the final judgment of Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18 to show that those Old Testament prophecies weren't fulfilled in the Old Testament. They weren't fulfilled under Sennacherib. They weren't fulfilled under Nebuchadnezzar. They weren't fulfilled under historic Babylon. And none of that happened. Therefore, it must yet be fulfilled. And we saw that there are numerous parallels in those prophecies to Revelation 17 and 18, and that that final destruction of Babylon occurs at the end of the tribulation period. Now, all of that was simply to set the stage for being able to understand this passage in Isaiah chapter 14 that is historically understood to relate to the fall of of Satan. Now, we looked at Babylon in Bible prophecy, and Babylon began 
the Old Testament with the Tower of Babel, which was where the languages were scattered. Very important event. Mankind is given uh, diverse languages in order to separate them into various tribal groups. And the purpose is to keep man from uniting against God in rebellion as they did at the Tower of Babel there in Genesis uh, chapter 11. And there is an attempt, though, to reverse Babylon today, which I think is simply setting the stage for what will occur in the future uh, tribulation period. Not, not that this is the fulfillment of that, but simply that this shows the thought patterns, the trends that are going on even now in, in our times. This doesn't mean that this is a fulfillment, just showing you that fallen man, pagan man, man in rebellion against God, it begins to identify uh, current activities and hopes and dreams with the ancient hopes and dreams of ancient Babylon. And here we have a picture of the... This, this is the headquarters for the linguistics and translation department of the European Union in Strasbourg, France. And their, their stated goal is to reunite the nations. And I didn't put a slide up here, but there is a, a, um, a globe here that has been fragmented and it shows that it is being put back together. And that's in the, in the entryway of the, uh, this particular building. And the architect of this building structured it on the pattern of the unfinished Tower of Babel. So, you know, it just, why would they do that? <laughs> it's almost like God has a plan, and man is, is fulfilling that plan even when he is in rebellion to God. So, these are not things that are just uh, interesting little academic studies, but they seem to be, uh, have some uh, real-time significance. We're looking at Isaiah chapter 14 because this is a passage that has historically been understood in Christianity to refer to the fall of a creature known as Lucifer. However, the term Lucifer really isn't found in the original text. We'll get into that in just a little bit. It's a little bit different name uh, than you might understand, but the fact that uh, the Vulgate, it comes out of the Vulgate, and the fact that that Jerome, the translator of the Vulgate, who lived in the uh, late 4th fourth, uh, century, uh, understood this to be to refer to the fall of Satan. So that's, a, that's an important thing to, uh, to recognize, that historically the church has understood these things. For example, I pointed out several weeks ago in a study of the background, the history of the translation of this passage, that there were, are, there's, there's a lot of historical support for understanding this passage to refer to Satan. For example, numerous people think that the passage refers uh, specifically to Satan. I've distinguished my position a little bit from that, but this would just refer directly and only to Satan, and this would be the translation of the Septuagint, which predates uh, Christianity. This was the Jewish translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. It's indicated by the Uh, abbreviation LXX, the Roman numeral for 70, because the legend was that 70 rabbis uh, in 70 days translated the Pentateuch from Hebrew into into Greek. So it's often uh, just referred to as the 
uh, by the abbreviation LXX. That's where you get the term septa for 70. In the early church, the, there were pseudepigraphal writings, the life of Adam and Eve, which was written sometime in the 2nd century A.D., the Slavonic Enoch, written sometime in the, also in the 2nd century A.D., uh, refer to this passage as indicating the fall of Satan. Origen, an early church father in the late uh, 2nd century, early 3rd century, was the first one to connect uh, Isaiah 14 to Ezekiel 28, the other passage that we believe describes the fall of Satan. Uh, Tertullian, remember he was the first to coin the term Trinitas to describe the threeness and oneness of God, the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, Cyprian, another uh, significant church father in the uh, 3rd century, plus the three Gregories, Gregory Thaumaturgus, Gregory Nazianzen, and Gregory of Nyssa. These were three great theologians who operated and they were called the Great Cappadocians. They operated in Asia Minor, which we call, which is modern Turkey, during the fourth century. They were uh, well-respected. Jerome, who translated the Septuagint, of course, understood this. And the vast majority of theologians, from Augustine to Gregory the Great, clearly understood these passages to all refer to Satan directly. Uh, one uh, who had a slightly different view was Hippolytus. Hippolytus understood this to be a prophecy related to the Antichrist in the future. But the Antichrist is indwelt by Satan, and so there is behind the figure of the Antichrist here the one who empowers him, who is Satan. And that is a position that I hold, and this is what we went through last time, showing that that Isaiah chapter 13 and Isaiah chapter 14 describe a prophecy looking forward to the destruction of Babylon. Now, here's a map just to remind you of where Babylon is located. It's due east of Jerusalem almost. It is on the Euphrates River. It is about 75 miles south of Baghdad, which is on the Tigris River. And Babylon, as we've seen uh, the last few weeks, has been in the process of being rebuilt. There's always been an habitation there in contrast to the prophecies that said there would be no habitation. The Arabs would not even dwell there, but that has not been fulfilled yet, and I've given you the evidence related to that. Now, last time I introduced you to this particular slide to give you a little understanding of of, uh, what we're talking about here. Uh, This is a timeline. At the beginning here, we have the fall of Satan identified as the anointed cherub who covers his fall as described in Ezekiel 28 and in Isaiah 14. Then human history begins. Sometime in the Old Testament, we have Isaiah. This is Isaiah back here, and he's looking forward to a future time. He's looking all the way to the return of Christ here at the end of the tribulation period and the fall of Babylon. So he is looking forward to an event, that time when the Antichrist uh, and Sa- is sent to the uh, lake of fire and Satan is bound, and then he shows up with in Sheol. The kings there taunt him, And this is a reference back then to what uh, he originally did. So when we come to Isaiah 12, I mean 14, verse 12, and we read how you have fallen from heaven, and verse 13, you said in your heart, 
I will ascend to heaven, and we have the five I wills of Satan, that took place in eternity past. But the time in which they are saying this in this taunt is when he is judged and uh, cast down into Sheol, which is just a general term. It can incorporate um, a number of different things. It's just the place where the unsaved dead go at this particular time. Okay? Now, let's get into our passage. Last time we went through the first 11 verses, and I pointed out that as we go through this, this is a time that's located after the return of the Jews to the land in peace. Verse 1 says, For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob, and will again choose Israel, will set them in their own land, and sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. This comes at a time when there's unity and when there is world peace. Verse 3, when the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil. And that for word for rest is a term that alludes to the millennial rest, the kingdom rest that Israel will have when they are united and return to the land. And this is why Israel is so important to, to study in terms of its history and in terms of its role in, in biblical prophecy. And there we have this phrase that at that time, after they have been returned to the kingdom, says, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. So this taunt is simply a way of ridiculing the king of Babylon, and this is a term that, uh, that refers to, the, refers to the, the, the final world ruler, the Antichrist, saying how the oppressor has ceased the insolent from his fury. And so they're taunting him about how he has been defeated and that God has uh, defeated him in verses 5 and 6. And in verse 7 we read that at this particular time when they, they are taunting him, the whole earth is at rest and quiet, and they will break forth into singing. And they sing about how, verse 9, Sheol is stirred up to meet you when you come, and it rouses the shades, that is, the spirits, uh, to greet you, all who were leaders of the earth. This is a reference to the fact that all the rulers of the earth who united against God, this is referred to in Psalm 2, united against God, uh, were judged and defeated at the Battle of Armageddon and then cast uh, into Sheol. All of them will answer and say to you, so this is how the, in the taunt, which is made by, you have to really pay attention to who's speaking in each place. The taunt is being given by the Jews who are at rest, and they're taunting this enemy that they've had. And in the midst of the taunt, they're going to talk about how when he arrives in Sheol, the kings of the nations who are there are going to also ridicule him. And in verse 10, we read, All of them will answer and say to you, the them refers to the rulers of the nations, the you refers to the king of Babylon who has fallen. You too have become weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. And then we have the key text that is at at issue here. Verse 12, Look how you have fallen from the sky. And I have tr uh, taken this translation and, and uh, cleaned it up just a little bit. 
so that it reflects what the original says. Oh, look how you have fallen from the sky, O shining one, son of the dawn. You've been cut down to the ground, O conqueror of the nations. You said to yourself, I will climb up to the sky above the stars of El. I will set up my throne. I will rule on the mountain of assembly on the remoteness of Zaphon. I will climb up to the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Uh, but you were brought down to Sheol, to the remote slopes of the pit. Now, what's important about this passage is it tells us of Satan's original sin, of his initial arrogance that the creature thought that he could uh, presume upon the Creator and elevate himself over over the Creator, that the creature could do more than the Creator. The creature could do what the Creator could not, that the creature could function as the Creator. It's a complete breakdown of the creator-creature distinction, which is embedded within uh, these five I wills. But we need to take just a little bit of time to talk about this. I pointed out in the past few weeks that in, current, in recent years, especially, there has arisen among evangelicals a tendency to say that this passage does not refer to the fall of Satan. Perhaps you've noticed that in your study Bible. If you have a New International Version, if you have a... Uh, NET Bible, which I don't recommend, which is a new, new, I think it's called New English Translation, uh, produced by a lot of the faculty members of Dallas Seminary, but I have uh, numerous problems with that translation, but I won't go into that. Uh, if you go look at the Nelson Study Bible, Nelson uh, Study Bible, and the notes there, in most of these study Bibles, they will have a note there that though some think this refers to the fall of Satan, it doesn't. It probably is an allusion to some uh, myth. Or it refers to either uh, the fall of Nebuchadnezzar or it sort of has a collective uh, idea of the, the, the arrogance of all of the Babylonian kings, something of, of that, particular, that particular nature. And this is something that's relatively new among evangelicals. And there are a number of people who will read that in their Bible and they'll come and ask me and say, well, what do you think about this? That's why I'm taking a little extra time to go through the details of this because I've been frequently asked about this. Does Isaiah 14 refer to the fall of Satan or not? And one of the problems that I've pointed out is if this doesn't refer to the fall of Satan, and if Ezekiel 28 doesn't refer to the fall of Satan, then we have no idea where this creature came from, how he became a sinner, if indeed he did become a sinner. In other words, could he have always existed? Could he have always existed as a counterpoint to God? In which case, then, you would have dualism. And there's a number of reasons why I, I believe that that people have gone in this, direct, this, this particular direction, and it has to do with the breakdown of hermeneutics in our uh, particular culture with uh, the rise of postmodernism and a number of other things, and you've seen uh, a real breakdown in uh, different elements, basic elements of theology, and this is just the way Satan attacks the church. And you've seen this throughout history. A little bit here is eroded. A little bit there is eroded. And a little bit more is eroded over here. Next thing you know, things begin to collapse. 
And that's exactly what would ha- happen if we followed a lot of these particular particular trends. That's why it took some time, I think three lessons back, to go through a historical review of how the church has almost without exception viewed this as the fall of Satan in both of these passages and linked them together. Uh, some of the reformers, for example, did not. Uh, Calvin did not. Luther did not. But that was had to do with uh, factors related to their general... Uh, they had a tendency to throw the baby out with the bathwater in terms of rejecting anything that uh, the Roman Catholic Church held just because the Roman Catholic Church uh, held it. But many of the uh, their their followers uh, reversed that and went back to understanding these passages in relationship to uh, the fall of Satan. Well, let's look at the details of the text here. It begins, how you are fallen from heaven, and I've taken this translation from the New King James. This is one that is familiar to many of you. How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. Let's just go back one slide. You see how I translated this based on the Hebrew. Look how you have fallen from the sky, O shining one, son of the dawn. That is a uh, that it was rendered by Jerome in the translation known as the Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Old Testament, as Lucifer, which had to do with light bearer from the Latin root uh, related to that. And it shows that he understood that this should be taken as a noun and that it was a proper name referring to a particular uh, individual creature who we later refer to as as Satan. The actual term in the Hebrew is Halel ben Shahar. Halel ben Shahar, which means a shining one, son of the dawn. Halel is the first word. Uh, ben is the word for sun, and shahar is the word for dawn. The entire phrase is used only this one time in the Hebrew uh, Old Testament, and we don't find this entire phrase, Halel ben shahar, in any other uh, extra-biblical uh, literature. The meaning of Halel is a little bit uncertain. There are those who have attempted to assign that to some pagan deity, and their attempts to say that this passage has its origin in relationship to uh, various pagan mythologies, and so it was just sort of adopted and brought into Christianity. Now, see, this this is one of the things that's kind of interesting, at least I find it interesting, in seeing how uh, ideas develop. In, in the 19th century, you had the rise of uh, the whole theory of evolution, that man uh, develops, goes from simple to complex, and so he starts off, and their assumption was that, that religion did the same thing. Their understanding was that uh, animism was the most, and spiritism were the most simple forms of, of uh, religion and worship of God, and then polytheism, and then uh, monotheism. And so they assume that God doesn't speak to man. They assume that God doesn't reveal himself in his word. And what you have in the Bible is not the revelation of God to man, but instead, it's just man's book about his coming to understand who and what God is. It's a product of a religious evolutionary process. 
And so they come from this presupposition that uh, there's nothing really unique and unusual about Israel. There's a, maybe a few little things, but it wasn't a revealed religion. They just borrowed from their neighbors and then kind of fine-tuned it a little bit to come up with their understanding. So uh, we would look at it and say, no, it's the reverse. It's the, that that the, the doctrine that's revealed in Scripture was originally revealed by God going back to the garden, and then man in his carnality uh, began to take things apart and everything began to deteriorate and become fragmented. And so you move from true monotheism, which is what Adam was in the garden, uh, a Trinitarian monotheist, and Noah was a Trinitarian monotheist, but then things began to break down very rapidly. And as a result of sin and carnality, man moves from uh, Trinitarian monotheism to monotheism, to polytheism, to animism and spiritism, and it's a devolution from the top down, not an evolution from uh, from the bottom up. And so what you see is that, it, that various mythologies have a core of truth that is sort of a residual memory from the, the way things actually were to begin with. And so uh, what happens is that the, the, the original truth of the fall of Satan would get corrupted and would be uh, modified as years went by. And so you see little bits and pieces and elements of it show up within various pagan mythologies. So the pagan mythologies reflect somewhat of a, of a greater universal absolute reality. They are not the basis for understanding uh, the, the fall of the king of Babylon here. Now, as this begins in verse verse 12, we read, How you are fallen from heaven, O uh, shining one, son of the morning. This word Hillel is used in Job in poetic sections, which means you always have to have a certain amount of fluidity in your words in poetry because words are used in a more uh, expressive manner there. And it's used to refer to the shining of the sun in Job 29, verse 3, and in Job 31, 26. So the root idea of this noun is the shining one. Then the term shahar uh, also occurs a few times in the Old Testament, and it is the word for dawn. So this term has certain astral overtones to it. That means it refers to a star and it probably refers to the evening star, the morning star, which we know is the planet Venus, because at the time of its ascendancy, it is the brightest star in the heavens and dominates the rest of the stars. And the idea of the relationship of this individual to the stars is brought out in verse 13, where in the second I will, he says, I will exalt my throne over the stars of God. So it is an allusion to the fact that this particular one is the highest, the brightest, the most exalted of all of the angels. And so he is addressed as Hillel bin Shahar, the shining one, the son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, they say. And this is the Hebrew word, gada, which means to cut in pieces. It describes the cutting off of a hand, the cutting off of an arm, sometimes it's used to refer to the uh, cutting 
of, uh, of anything in terms of its complete removal from its source of power. And so this is used here to describe the uh, removal of this creature from his uh, prior position of authority. And he is described as the one who weakens the nations. And, and the word halas here translated weakens is that he is the one who brings the nations to defeat. It's a term that is often used in military contexts to describe those who are defeated, weakened in battle, and are completely vanquished. So he is the one who, because of his arrogance, because of his pride, he is the one who led his followers to a complete and absolute defeat. Then we come to verse 13. Verse 13 begins the description of the five I wills. The five I wills summarize the arrogant orientation of the creature uh, Halel ben Shahar, or I'll also refer to him as Lucifer. Uh, it says, For you have said in your heart, that is, that you have thought this began in thinking. Sin often begins in our thoughts with our mental attitude. Arrogance is a sin of mental attitude. It is not an overt sin. It's a mental attitude sin. And and, uh, arrogance is the source, the root of almost all other sins. It is a self-orientation, a self-absorption as opposed to a divine orientation and a God-absorption. It is in complete contrast when we talk about human viewpoint versus divine viewpoint. We talk about arrogance at the core versus humility toward God, orientation to God, absorption with God. So he's thinking this begins with a thought sin. Often in our culture, and as a result of legalism, people are very superficial, so they get all upset about certain overt sins that take place and overlook a tremendous amount of, of uh, arrogance. And it always amuses me somewhat how, how uh, many churches uh, get all caught up and wrapped around the uh, axle about all kinds of, of overt sins that, that uh, people commit. And they all have their list, their legalistic list of the terrible twos or the uh, nasty nines or however long their list is of things you can't do and really be a Christian. And if you do this, how can you claim that you're a Christian or whatever? And... Um, and yet they never talk about arrogance. And usually these churches are filled with arrogant believers. And you see, I've seen pastors thrown out of pulpits for uh, co- committing certain acts, not egregious ones that you might think of, but some things. And yet uh, I have also seen many pastors not thrown out of churches and they're uh, just filled with all kinds of arrogance because arrogance is it's the most besetting sin for all of us, but it particularly affects, I think, a lot of pastors. But that's what we see here is this this uh, representation of the creature's arrogance in these five I wills because this is not only at the core of Satan's heart, but it's at the core of the heart of every fallen creature. And so he begins with the first I will saying, I will ascend to heaven. This summarizes his ambition. He aspired to the highest of positions. He wanted to compete with God himself. He wanted to uh, be thought of as high and as great as God himself. He desired to enter into the very command post 
of God and to rule the universe and to run the universe. And it's interesting that it is, it is this whole scenario here that really uh, distinguishes this particular event from any of the parallels you might find in some of the pagan myths. You have Greek, Greek and Canaanite and Assyrian myths that people go to that have various uh, indications of the battles of the gods or different things like that. But, but the, the similarities are vastly outweighed by the differences. And uh, you have, for example, in a Baal myth, you have uh, this cycle where Baal goes into the netherworld for a period of time and another god comes up and tries to sit on his throne, but he's too short and he's, he's not powerful enough and he's there for a short time during, during the winter and then he's off and Baal comes back. But he's there legitimately. He's there because he is invited to take Baal's place while Baal is isolated in the netherworld during that time. Whereas what we have here is that this particular uh, creature says, I will ascend into heaven. He is, he is announcing his intention to revolt and to usurp the authority that's there. And that's not what you have in the Baal myth. And there's always these kinds of, of, of differences. And you go back and you read, take the time to read some of these uh, myths that various uh, theologians come up with as the basis for this, and you realize that you realize the differences outweigh the uh, the similarities. In fact, I was reading one uh, the writing of one particular uh, Dallas Seminary Old Testament professor who argues very strongly that this is just a uh, Canaanite myth that is alluded to here, and uh, and yet when he gets all through his argument, he says, but actually we can't really identify it with any known myth. And that's the problem, is there's always this assertion that it relates to some myth, but nobody can find any real parallel to it. And so I, I think it's just a, an example of uh, academics always have to justify their existence by coming up with some kind of uh, new insight somewhere. And uh, we can't just be satisfied with the, the fact that it's just like the hymn says, it's just the old, old story and it doesn't change. And we're just teaching the same truth that's been taught for 2,000 years. Let's not try to find some radical breakthrough new insight that's going to uh, make everything different. It's still the same old story. I will ascend into heaven, uh, Lucifer says, and second, he says, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Stars of God here may refer to the literal stars of heaven, but probably uh, does not. Often the phrase, the, the term stars in scripture is used as a term to designate the angels. It's used that way, for example, in Job 38, verse 7, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Notice that in the parallelism between the first stanza and the second stanza, that morning stars is synonymous with the phrase sons of God. And the term sons of God, Beneha Elohim, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, was a designation for the angels because they were all created uh, directly by God. We covered that in our introduction to the angelic conflict. 
All the sons of God shouted for joy. The sons of God and the morning stars are the same. In the New Testament, in Revelation chapter 2, we see that the stars are related to the angels of the church there in that imagery in Revelation 1 and later in Revelation 2 that the the seven lampstands represent the seven churches and the stars represents the angels of the seven churches there at the end of Revelation uh, chapter 1. So this is a term used to refer to angels. And when Lucifer says, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, he is seeking to be the final and ultimate authority over all of the angels rather than God. The next phrase is translated, let me go back a slide. The next phrase is translated, I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. Now, what in the world does that mean? That seems like a kind of a, a convoluted thing. Well, maybe it just refers to the angels again, the mount of the congregation. What congregation is that? What does it mean, the farthest sides of the north? Well, actually, we need to look at a more accurate translation. I want to go back to the way I translated it here at the beginning. Uh, notice at the end, the middle verse there, Isaiah 14:13. At the end, it, uh, I, I translate this, I will rule on the mountain of assembly on the remoteness of Zaphon. Now, what in the world is Zaphon? What is going on here? Well, I think this is one of the most interesting little interpretive challenges within this whole uh, section for us. Uh, Zaphon is associated with the highest mountain in Syria, which is Mount Cassius. And Mount Cassius was the counterpart to uh, the, the uh, Assyrians and the Syrians to, and the Arameans to Mount Olympus. Mount Olympus was the abode of the gods for the Greeks, and Mount Cassius or Mount Zephon was considered the abode of the gods and goddesses uh, in, for the uh, Arameans. And so there are those who think this is simply an allusion to uh, all of the, the pantheon of the, of the false gods, which ultimately represent, the, represent uh, the demons. And so there is the suggestion that this is borrowed uh, from, uh, from, again, uh, pagan mythology. I will rule over uh, all of the gods and goddesses would be the sense of what this is saying. However, the problem with this is that the word Zaphon is actually used in the scripture in a couple of places. It's used as a reference to heaven in Job 26, verse 7. Uh, it's used as a simply a term for the remote north in Ezekiel chapter 1, which also describes a vision of God. And it is used of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount in Psalm 48, verse 2. So the idea is that the term Zaphon, because it refers to Mount Cassius, which was the highest mountain in Syria, is, is a term that becomes idiomatic for the highest place on earth or even heaven. And in some passages, that's what it is an allusion to, is the dwelling place of God. And so... It is used, uh, and, and we, if it refers literally to an, the place on earth, it's used metaphorically in contrast to Sheol, which is the lowest part, the highest point and the lowest point. And so what uh, it would mean in that particular case is that uh, Lucifer is saying, I will rule from the highest 
place there is. And, of course, the highest place there is is heaven. So it becomes an idiom uh, for, for heaven. He's simply saying, I will rule over the assembly from the most remote and highest part of heaven. Isaiah 14.14, let me advance down to that slide. Isaiah 14.14, the fourth I will, he says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And the clouds, the term clouds, often is associated with the presence of God. Remember the pillar of cloud that went before the Israelites as they left Egypt and as they went through the wilderness. It was a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by the day. It represented the presence of God. And it often represents his involvement and intervention in history. Also, God is often pictured as riding on a cloud in Scripture. In Psalm 18.11, Psalm 68.4, Psalm 104.3. I'll give those to you again. Psalm 18.11, Psalm 68.4, Psalm 104.3. God is depicted as riding on a cloud. So, again, he is expressing in this I will his desire to rule over the domain of God. And to and this is finally expressed in the last I will, I will make myself like the most high. So there is this jealousy by this creature to have the power, the authority, the rulership to do what only God can do. He, wa- he wants to make himself the creature to act as as the creator. And this becomes the... The defining element in arrogance where man wants to be uh, his own creator, his own final authority, his own boss. In the same way, this is what Satan did initially. He set himself up. He wanted to be the ultimate reference point in the universe. And this is the, the battle that takes place throughout human history. And we see this. I just want to reference a couple of passages as we go through uh, the Bible. From the time in the Garden of Eden when the serpent... Now, it's interesting, just a little allusion to kind of keep you adjusted as to what goes on in the exacts and spasms of the modern church, is that the same people that tend to say, oh, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28 couldn't refer to Satan, also say that this is just a serpent. This doesn't have anything to do with Satan in the Garden. If uh, you were reading this as a Jew in the pl- on the plains of Moab, you'd have never thought this was Satan. But, you know, they, they, they fail to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And I started off with passage in, from Revelation 12 where, where the devil is identified as the dragon and the serpent of old. So Scripture tells us what these... Uh, images refer to, and the Jews understood that in the Old Testament. So the serpent who is indwelt by Satan says to the woman, you're not surely going to die. Now what he's doing is he uses the same terminology that God used in Genesis 2.17. God said, the day you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. There's only one difference. Two letters in the Hebrew, lo, you won't die. They enter the word the negative there. And so it's very important to understand that, it, that, that from the very inception, God is showing us that every word is important because just two letters make a tremendous difference, the difference between uh, sin and not sin. So the serpent says, you're not going to die. And, of course, what he's saying is God's a liar. And then he uh, slanders God in verse 5. He says, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened 
and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, the serpent is tempting them with the same basis for his fall. You want to be God. All you have to do is eat the fruit. You'll be like God. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to be like God. He is trying to set himself up as God. Of course, the mistake that Satan made there was he didn't realize how much competition he was creating when he did that. See, today you have, what, 7 billion people on the planet? 7 billion people competing with uh, Satan to be God. So he has trouble bringing order into uh, the cosmos. Well, another key passage that we can examine is the temptation of Christ by Satan, by the devil. The devil uh, begins to tempt the Lord Jesus Christ in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. And this is to uh, sort of vindicate Jesus Christ and to validate him as as the one who is ready to uh, minister and to serve during the three years of his ministry on the earth. And so in the second temptation, the devil, that is the accuser, says to him, all this authority I will give you and their glory, that is he's referring to all the kingdoms of the earth, uh, for this has been delivered to me and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. What's he doing? He's going back to that same thing. If you will just worship me as God, that's what he wants to. He has to be recognized by God. He knows who Jesus is. He knows he's the Son of God. He knows he's, he's the eternal second person of the Trinity. He's saying, just recognize me as God. He's still after what he was after in Isaiah chapter 14, to be recognized as God. And, of course, uh, Jesus uh, rebukes him at that particular time. They move on to the third Uh, third temptation. But then we come to our third passage I want to look at, and that's in Philippians 2, 5 through 7, which is a passage we've dealt with in detail in the past in relationship to Jesus Christ. But what I want you to note is the mentality that's present in Jesus that is highlighted and emphasized in contrast to the mentality of Satan. And see, this is what's at the core of the angelic conflict, and one of the things at the core of the angelic conflict is the contrast between the divine virtues and the uh, human arrogance-based uh, character qualities. We're exhorted, let this mentality, this mindset, this mental attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, and I'll uh, add a little more uh, expanded translation here, who, although he was in the form of God, I mean, recognizing that he is at the very essence of God, a full deity, did not consider it robbery or something to be grasped to be equal with God. In other words, what this is saying is Jesus, here, here on, on the contrast is Satan is a creature and wants to grab after deity. In contrast, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, is the epitome of humility because even though he is full deity, he's willing to limit the use of it to become obedient even to the point of a death on the cross in order to provide for our salvation. So the passage contrasts the humility of Jesus Christ with the arrogance of Satan. And that's the issue, is that it's not only a matter of salvation, but it's a matter of having the qualities, the characteristics, the fruit of the Spirit developed in our lives so that we reflect this humility because man doesn't get ahead 
through arrogance. Arrogance is always self-destructive. We get ahead only through humility, only through recognizing who we are as creatures of God and being totally dependent upon God. That's what humility means. It means completely oriented to the authority of someone. It doesn't mean to think lowly of yourselves. It doesn't mean to be humiliated. It doesn't mean to uh, be uh, uh, to be self-denigrating. It simply means to to be recognize who you are under the right authority. And this is what Jesus Christ is doing. He's keeping himself under the authority of God the Father, whereas in contrast, Satan and arrogance rebelled against the authority of God the Father. And so in Isaiah chapter 14, we see depicted there the original sin of Satan. This is when evil enters into the universe. Now next week, we'll come back and we'll look at the uh, related passage, which is in Ezekiel chapter 28, and then tie these two together to show how it forms the basis for the angelic conflict as it works out in human history. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you so much that we have your word, that it reveals to us the, the end from the beginning, tells us how sin entered into the universe, tells us what the issues are, tells us how sin entered into human history, and tells us how you provided a perfect salvation for us. That Jesus Christ was willing to humble himself to take on the form of a man in order to go to the cross. That he was willing to uh, go through the humiliating death of the cross in order to pay the penalty for our sins. That you, in the second person of the Trinity, paid the sin penalty. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ, the eternal God, became a man. He entered into human history through the virgin conception and birth, and he then went to the cross to die. In his death, he took upon himself the sins of the world. He paid our penalty so that all we have to do is to trust in him. It's not a matter of recognizing our sin or our sinfulness. It's not a matter of of, uh, trying to bargain with God or joining a church. It's simply a matter of recognizing that Jesus Christ paid for our sins. In his death, we have forgiveness. When we trust in him, we're justified. When we trust in him, we have eternal life. And this can never be taken from us. Now, Father, we pray that as we think about the things we studied this morning, we'll have our understanding of the scope of history and the, the evil that, that is present in the world expanded, and we understand that all of this comes out of this initial rebellion and how that rebellion has created all the pain, all the trauma, all the suffering that we have in human history. And yet you and your grace have provided a perfect solution to reverse this and to destroy evil and sin and to ultimately and finally uh, bring judgment and to right all the wrongs, and that there will be final judgment and justice for all. And Father, we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.